This I recall to mind and therefore have hope. It is of the Lord's mercies that we are not consumed. His compassions fail not. They are new every morning. Great is thy faithfulness. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge Him and He will direct your paths. Commit thy way unto the Lord. Trust also in Him and He will bring it to pass. Delight thyself in the Lord and He will give you the desires of your heart. Cast thy burden on the Lord. Trust also in Him. He will bring it to pass. Before we begin our study of God's Word this evening, let's make sure that we're in fellowship, ready to study God's Word. We do that through the use of 1 John 1.9. If we confess our sins, God is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. What a fantastic promise that is in the Scriptures that no matter what happens, what we do, What sin we commit, we know that every sin was paid for by Jesus Christ on the cross. In the omniscience of God, He knew every sin that we would ever commit, past, present, and future. There's no sin that we can commit that is too great for His grace. There's no sin that we commit that will shock or surprise God. God took care of it on the cross. So all that we have to do is confess or admit, acknowledge our sins to God the Father. We do that privately as part of our priesthood. We don't have to impress God with how sorry we are because God knows that later on today or tomorrow or tonight we're going to commit that same sin again in a thousand five hundred times before we die. So we don't have to try to pull the wool over his eyes by making God think that that we're really sincere when at the moment we might be, but we are frailty, the Scripture says. We are made of dust and we have a sin nature. And the heart is deceitful and wicked above all things. Who can know it? And we tend to forget these things in the spiritual life and it's so easy for people to succumb to various forms of legalism to try to impose Christianity on people, some kind of morality that has nothing to do with the Bible. But we're going to begin, as usual, with a few moments of silent prayer and then we'll open in prayer. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for Your grace that it is undeserved, unearned favor. It is Your goodness to us because of who You are and what Jesus Christ did on the cross. And it has nothing to do with who we are or what we do, for we can do nothing to impress You. Father, we thank You that You have provided everything and that it is all bound up in what we receive at the moment of salvation, faith alone and Christ alone. Father, we thank You that You have given us the light of Your Word to illuminate everything every way in which we ought to think about life, that Your Word provides the starting point and the framework for every issue in life. Now, Father, as we continue our study of James this evening, we pray that You'd help us to understand these things and see how they relate to our lives. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. In the last few weeks, as our study of James chapter 3 has come to a conclusion, we saw in that last paragraph of James 3, 13 to 18, that James juxtaposed two ways of thinking. One was wisdom. The other is called in the Bible foolishness. Wisdom is what we have called divine viewpoint thinking. It is also called spiritual thinking, truth, or Bible doctrine. On the other hand, foolishness is often akin to legalism. We call it human viewpoint thinking. It is called the thinking of the natural man, earthly and demonic, because it is false doctrine. In one sense, in one sense, all human viewpoint thinking is demonic. Why would I say that? Not necessarily because it has its source in demonic thinking. Let's go back and analyze how sin was introduced into the universe. In eternity past, God created the angels. In one instant of time, God created the entire host of angels. How many angels are there? There are myriads upon myriads of angels, the Scripture says. Innumerable. 
when God created them, they were all created absolutely perfect with perfect righteousness. There was no sin found in any of the angels. God is perfect. He can create nothing less than perfection. So all of the angels came forth perfect, but they all had volition. They could choose for or against God. This was the only issue for the angels is how they felt in terms of loyalty to God. Well, the highest of all the angels was named Lucifer. And Lucifer decided that he wanted to be like God. He wanted to have all the worship that God received. And so Lucifer uttered five statements which all begin with the verb, I will, listed in Isaiah chapter 14 and culminating in the statement, I will be like the Most High. This is nothing less than arrogance. And arrogance is the root of all sin. It is the creature thinking that he can define reality apart from the Creator. That is arrogance. And so all human viewpoint wisdom are ideas, thoughts, values that are contrary. And even though at points they may be parallel, they may be parallel to divine viewpoint thinking, they are completely opposed because even though you can reach over into human viewpoint thinking and pull out a principle such as freedom, and you can reach over into divine viewpoint thinking and pull out the same principle related to human freedom, because the ideological base for spiritual freedom, freedom as expressed in the Bible, in the Mosaic Law, is radically opposed to the kind of freedom that has developed from human viewpoint systems of thought. So even though there may appear to be, at a certain level, a, a, uh, a certain symmetry and a certain similarity, because they fit within a complete mosaic of thought that is opposed one to another, they are different. Now that's hard to think through, but what we're dealing with here is thought forms and last week, we took this to a new level, addressing parents. That it is parents are responsible for teaching their children. The psalm says that foolishness is bound up in the heart of a child. Foolishness is human viewpoint thinking. Now, one way in which you correct that in your children is through discipline. Corporal discipline. Spanking your children. That is biblical and it is necessary. There's no other way in which they're going to learn many things than through corporal discipline. But you have to understand that their natural affinity, the affinity of their soul, remember an unbeliever is made up of a body and a soul. They lack a human spirit. Human spirit is that which gives them the ability to relate to God and the ability to understand uh, spiritual things. Without that human spirit, they just have a soul. And the Bible says they are soulish and uses the Greek word pneumatikos. In 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 14, in the Greek it's P-N-E-U-M-A-T-I-K-O-S. And that, uh, excuse me, getting my Greek confused here, it's sukikos. Sukikos, from suke, P-S-U-C-H-I-K-O-S, from suke meaning soul, soulish, the absence of a human spirit. Now, this is the same term that is used in first, I mean, in James 3 when it talks about the wisdom from below is earthly, natural, and demonic. So it is not me saying that human viewpoint thinking is demonic. It's the Word of God that says it's demonic. Why? Because it is parallel to the kind of reasoning and thinking which characterize Satan's and Lucifer's initial sin, the fall of Lucifer, and the thinking that envelops all of his reasoning. That's why there is complete antagonism between human viewpoint thinking and divine viewpoint thinking and the wisdom of Scripture. So your job as a parent is to teach and instruct your children how to think about life biblically. 
Now here's the challenge for you parents. You can't teach your kids how to think biblically unless you learn how to think biblically. And you're not going to learn how to think biblically unless that's a priority in your life. How to look at the issues of life from a biblical perspective. And the Bible addresses everything. It says something about everything. And we must learn how to utilize what the Scripture teaches. And and I gave a model last week, and I want to repeat it this time, because there are a lot of things that go under the guise of entertainment. All sorts of movies, everything from Star Wars to Star Trek to animation, cartoons, things like the Pokemon cards. We talked about that last time. All of these various things have a, in some cases, they have a very obvious worldview with them. Almost a mythology comes along with these various things and it teaches a certain way of looking at reality, and in many cases, it teaches something about problem solving. For example, if you take Star Wars, it's easy for me to pick on Star Wars, and I I love it. I love watching all the movies, but I realize that there's a danger there. People don't realize that they are listening to a, a mythology developed by George Lucas and Spielberg, a, a general um, epic view of reality that is consciously built on an Eastern religious frame of reference. And that is being taught at a very subtle level within the framework of these movies. And the same thing is true with many kinds of science fiction. So what you need to do is teach people to think critically, not say, don't go to movies. That's asinine. You know, of course you can go to movies. Everything you watch, everything you see on TV, you can enjoy to some level. You just have to think and not absorb it. Now, there are certainly some things that you don't want to watch because of their vulgarity and profanity, but, but there are many things. Everything, every piece of literature you read comes from a certain worldview, no matter what it is. Every piece of fiction, whether you're reading David Copperfield, written by Charles Dickens, or you're reading something by William Faulkner, or you're reading something from the Middle Ages, whatever it might be, everything consistently is written within the frame of, frame of reference of the author. Who was it I saw on, uh, interviewed on, who was that the other morning on one of the uh, talk shows? It was a, uh, oh, it was a comedian. It was Chris Rock. And they were, the, he was being interviewed before they had the MTV Awards last week. And uh, one of the morning talk show people was interviewing him and asked him, said, do you do anything uh, that you don't really believe in. He said, no artist does anything that is inconsistent with what they think. Now think about that a minute. No artist, that's a musician, that's a, artist, uh, a, a, a painter, a, a uh, lyricist, does anything that's inconsistent with their basic views about reality. And yet I've gotten into arguments with people who've said, oh no, that, that's not true at all. But nobody is going to express something that's expressive of themselves, whether they're an actor or whether they're um, an, an artist, a physical, a painter, or whether they're a musician, that is not consistent with their own basic view of reality. That's just the nature of the beast. And so we have to learn to think critically as believers. And I taught about this grid last week. First of all, let's break down basic categories. God, man, Values, history, problem solving, power. Power has been a key term since the early 80s, whether you talk about the mystical, metaphysical power of the New Age movement. You see this in all kinds of different things. Uh, you men in business have, have to go to all kinds of seminars where they teach all kinds of power techniques under different terminology, everything from Stephen Covey to tribes training and education, all kinds of things like this, all teach certain problem-solving techniques that are 180 degrees antithetical to what the Scripture teaches. And the more you're exposed to that over and over and over again, it's like brainwashing. So you always have to have your radar up and your antenna out to make sure you spot these various things. What is it saying about God? What is the ultimate view of reality presented in this? Whether it's a cartoon, 
series, whether it's some kind of a children's show or a movie, whatever. What is the ultimate view of reality? How do they view man? Is man just another cog in the system? Is man just another cog within the, uh, a mechanistic uh, universe? Or is God, or, or is man um, a, a, a treated as a creature and as a person? Further, you need, is man the source of truth? The source of his own happiness? What values are expressed? What is the source of values? For example, in, um, in the Star Wars epic, you have the Force and the values related to the Force. And if you think about it, there's a good side and a bad side to the Force. In Eastern religions, they have a symbol that looks something like this, the yin-yang symbol, and this is usually black and this is white. This represents uh, suffering and evil, and this represents good but it's all encapsulated within one circle. And that's known as monism. That ultimately there's just one. That's like Hinduistic nirvana. And that's what you see exemplified in the uh, one scene in the second Star Wars movie when Luke has been trained by uh, Yoda, the Jedi Knight, and he goes into the dark forest and he does battle with Darth Vader and he cuts his head off. And then when he opens the visor on his helmet, he looks inside and sees himself. It's the Beatles song, I am you, you are me, he is she, we are one. You see these kinds of pantheistic, monistic ideas have been running through our culture for a long time, all the way back into the 60s. So you have to look at what's the source of values. How do they view history? Is history uh, going somewhere? Is history going up? Are we constantly improving? Do we have an optimistic view of history? And why? Why would you think it's always optimistic? Is it, is it cyclical? This is basic paganism, is you always have cycles. It's like reincarnation, just endless cycles. It never really goes anywhere. Or is it declining? See, from a biblical viewpoint, we see history, the history of mankind in deterioration in the future. It only is saved by Jesus Christ returning at the second coming. What's, what are the problem-solving basis? Is it some kind of a magical solution, some kind of a, a magical toy, a, some kind of a, a trinket, uh, possessing somebody, controlling one of these little Pokemon monsters? Uh, that's how you solve problems so that you can overcome things. Uh, everything has some kind of problem-solving technique associated with it. And what is the ultimate source of power? Now let's look at what, where I got this far last week and I didn't get to the last passage I wanted to look at, which is in 2 Corinthians chapter 10. I began last time with, with the introduction that we are involved in warfare. And you parents are involved in warfare, and the warfare is for the thinking of each one of us. The warfare is for our thinking, and what is going to control that? And what you have to do as a parent, and, and really any believer has to think this way, you have to develop a military frame of reference for your life. You are constantly being propagandized by the enemy to think a certain way. He's constantly dropping leaflets and notes and pamphlets in your front yard. And some of you as parents just let your kids run out there and read whatever they want to. You know, they can turn on anything they want to on TV, play with anything they want to. You're not exercising any control or any kind of discernment. And your kids are going to be just, you know, they're going to drive you nuts when they hit puberty. You see, this is the issue. is what are you letting into their minds and are you teaching them to erect a biblical viewpoint a biblical frame, frame of reference, a grid to analyze and think about everything. And so you need to think of everything that comes into the house as part of this kind of propaganda that Satan is putting out into the world. Look at first, Second Corinthians 10 and see how the Apostle Paul expresses it at verse 3. He says, For though we walk, and we have seen that walking is 
uh, a metaphor for the moment-by-moment dependence on the Lord and the Christian life. He says, though we walk in the flesh, that is, in the physical body. He's not using flesh here in terms of the sin nature. He says, though we walk in the flesh, we do not war according to the flesh. See, he shifts his terminology on that word flesh. Though we walk in the flesh, that is, in mortal bodies, we are not warring according to the flesh. Remember our study on the first hour on Sunday morning in Galatians chapter 5. I'm going to turn there and read that to you. Galatians 5.16 But I say, walk by means of the Spirit, and you will not bring to completion or carry out or fulfill the desire of the flesh. For the flesh, that is the sin nature, sets its desire against the Spirit and the Spirit against the flesh. So when we talk about our two grids for thinking about life, we have divine viewpoint and human viewpoint. Divine viewpoint is that biblical doctrine which is inculcated in our souls by the Holy Spirit. Human viewpoint is the natural thinking that is related to the soulish man, the sin nature, and the flesh. So when Paul says, though we walk in the flesh, that is, in a mortal body, we do not war according to the principles of the flesh. Our warfare is not according to the, to the natural principles that man develops from human viewpoint thinking. So our methodology... Now this gets a little deep for some of you, and someday we'll explore this in more depth. But for right now, you just need to understand that how you do what you do is often as important as what you do. Let me bring that down to a common everyday level. A right thing done in a right way is right. A right thing done in a wrong way is wrong. A wrong thing done in a wrong way is wrong. And a wrong thing done in a right way is wrong. Only a right thing done in a right way is right. That's methodology. So it it not only matters what you do, but how you go about doing it. That's what the Scriptures teach. And I remember that you all know Tommy Ice. And Tommy and I used to get into deep theological arguments with other students in seminary because the assumption was that methodology was neutral so that you can go out and witness any way you want to. But how you express the gospel is as important as expressing it correctly. You never see Jesus beg people to accept Him as Savior. And yet you see a begging approach by many evangelists. But Jesus never did it that way. Why? Because that destroys the content. How you package it can destroy the content. So a right thing must be done in a right way. So we do not conduct our warfare in the spiritual life according to principles and methodologies developed by the flesh. So that means that when you are developing methodologies based on rationalism or empiricism, they're eventually going to develop problems. This is one of the reasons why you had a lot of problems in Christianity at the end of the 19th century and during the 19th century is because they were using methodologies built on rationalism and empiricism. Let me give you a classic example. Empiricism is the scientific methodology. Empiricism is the whole approach to developing hypotheses, theories, testing them in the laboratory, and developing laws. It's experimentation. And, of course, as a result of the Enlightenment in the 17th and 18th century, you had the development and the rise of science and technology in the, in the uh, late 1700s and early 1800s, which produced the Industrial Revolution and a tremendous wave of optimism in Western Europe and in America thinking that science could solve all the problems. So there was a rationalistic methodology that was accepted. Then when Darwin came along and he and others during the 19th century began to put forth their information on the theory of evolution, who was it that promoted more than any other group of people? Who was it that promoted Darwinism? 
who is most responsible in Victorian England for getting Darwinism accepted? The clergy. Why? Because they had adopted as their mental frame of reference, hook, line, and sinker, the rationalism and empiricism of their generation. Now, rationalism and empiricism are very helpful and very important and very legitimate in their sphere. But when rationalism and empiricism are the ultimate guidelines for determining truth, that's when you get into trouble. And that's what happened in the 19th century. So it was a right thing done in a wrong way in many cases. So Paul says, We do not war according to the flesh, for the weapons of our warfare are not from the source, it's a genitive of source here, not from the source of the flesh, but divinely powerful for the destruction of fortresses. Now I want you to notice what's going to come up in verse 5. Verse 5, we are destroying speculations and every lofty thing raised up against the knowledge of God, and we are taking every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. What are we talking about in verse 5? Are we talking about the way most superficial Christians think about Christianity in terms of very, uh, very obvious, overt behaviors? Don't go to movies, don't drink, don't smoke, don't dance, don't chew, don't go with girls that do. Is that what, what Paul is talking Is that Paul's vision of the spiritual life here? No. His vision of the spiritual life is you have to deal with your thinking. If you don't revolutionize what's going on in the thinking of your soul, then and all you do is change what's going on on the outside then you're no different from the Pharisees. And Jesus said that the Pharisees were whitewashed sepulchers. A sepulcher is a gravestone. looks nice on the outside. It's pretty, engraved, polished. But underneath, it's just dead man's bones. And it's nothing but deterioration and decay. And there's nothing living inside. And that is the picture of many types of Christianity today because they're focusing on overt, outside, superficial things and not on what's going on in thinking. Thinking. You have to learn how to think biblically. Now, I've often used this diagram and I'm going to add something to it. We've talked about the grace learning spiral. That a pastor-teacher communicates doctrine to people. The Holy Spirit indwells a person and makes it understandable. That doesn't mean He understands it for you. He makes it understandable so that it's possible now, as a believer with the human spirit, for you to comprehend Scripture. That doesn't mean you comprehend it the first time it's taught. You may hear it a thousand times before it starts to click. But you've got to listen to it 999 times before you get to the thousandth time when it will click. The sad thing is a lot of believers don't have the perseverance and endurance to sit there through the 999 times. They want it the first time. They want it that pablum all prepared for them on their plate so they can just suck it up with a straw and not have to really think about it. But like most things in life, some things in Christianity are Easier to understand than other things. Some things are baby food. Some things are more advanced doctrine. But the Holy Spirit will make it all understandable. But you have to exercise your, vo- your volition to think about it. When you think about it and understand it, it enters into the thinking of your soul as gnosis. Now, these two concentric circles here represent that cognitive part of your soul, the thinking part of your soul. It has two spheres, two arenas of activity according to the Scripture. One word the Scripture uses is the word noose. Another word that the Scripture uses is cardia. Cardia is often translated the heart. And it's not a reference to the physiological organ that's pumping blood through your body, but is a reference, the, the metaphor, the force of the metaphor is it's talking about the inner 
core of something. The inner core of a tree. We talk about the heart of a tree. You go down to to, uh, the grocery store and you buy hearts of palms. That's the inner core of the palm, the, the tenderest part. You talk in an argument. You listen to somebody's argument for something and you talk about the heart of their argument, the heart of their position. That's the very core of their, of their uh, presentation. When you talk about the heart, you're talking about the innermost thinking of, a, of the human being. This is where your deepest core beliefs reside. And when the Scripture talks about repentance, repentance from the Greek word metanoieo, which means to change your thinking, it's not talking about changing what's going on out here in the news. It's talking about going deep down into the very core of your soul and taking your foundational beliefs about life and changing them so that they're in alignment with the Word of God. And that's scary to a lot of people. They don't want that kind of change because most people think their, their opinions about life and how life works and why things are the way they are By the time they're in their 20s or 30s, they've achieved a level of comfort. And to talk about going in and doing this kind of radical surgery on the thinking in the deepest parts of your soul that's going to revolutionize how you look look at your marriage, how you look at your responsibilities as a parent, how you look at your responsibilities at, at the job, all of this is going to flow from it. But it starts by understanding a lot of things about who God is and the nature of ultimate reality. And you have to get in touch with it. And it's not going to happen just by coming to Bible class and taking notes. You need to then go home and you need to think about these things. And as you think about them, the Holy Spirit will use that doctrine to revolutionize the thinking in your soul. This is what, why Paul is saying... The weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but they're divinely powerful. What's the source of power in the spiritual life? It's twofold. It's the filling of God the Holy Spirit, and it's the Word of God. It is the Word of God, Hebrews 4.12 says, that is living and powerful, sharper than any two-edged sword. Why? Because it is truth. It is absolute truth in every area it touches. And it is designed to revolutionize our thinking according to reality. See, truth is merely another way of talking about reality. Reality, though, as God created it and God defined it, not as we think it is on the basis of our experience. So that means we have to understand what God says about the nature of everything in life. So these are the two bases for power in the spiritual life. At the moment of salvation, God does for us 39 irrevocable things. These are absolute realities. We express those in the diagram with the top and bottom circle. We are in union with Christ. That's one of them. We are baptized By by means of the Holy Spirit, we are united with Christ in His death, burial, and resurrection, according to Romans 6, 1 through 4. We have an eternal relationship with Him as part of the ministries of God the Holy Spirit. We're indwelt by God the Holy Spirit, and we're filled by God the Holy Spirit. But of those 39 irrevocable assets that God gives us, those 39 spiritual realities, there is one that is revocable. And that is the filling of the Holy Spirit. Because when we... The filling of the Spirit is the source of power and learning and application of doctrine in the bottom circle here. Our temporal, our day-to-day walk with the Lord. So when we sin, how much sin does it take to violate the absolute righteousness of God? Any sin. It doesn't matter how small you think it is. All Adam did was eat a piece of fruit and it plunged the entire human race into spiritual death and resulted in a divine curse on all of nature. Now, a lot of people would think, well, that was a little overreaction on God's part, wasn't it? No, the issue was obedience to God and living up to His perfect standard. What the righteousness of God demands, the justice of God executes. And when Adam 
violated the absolute righteousness of God, God had to judge the human race. So any amount of sin, whether it's a mental attitude sin, whether it's an overt sin, whether it's a sin of the tongue, gets us out of fellowship and we're in carnality. The recovery is based on 1 John 1.9. It's simple. It's not based on emotion. It's not based on feeling sorry for your sin. It's not based on uh, begging God to forgive you or making some kind of bargain with God that, oh Lord, just don't ever, I won't ever do this again, just don't punish me. And we've all done that at some time or another. Just simply admitting your sin to God. God's not impressed by how sorry we are because He's omniscient. He knows just how sorry you really are. And He also knows when you're going to commit that sin again. As soon as we admit our sins to God, we're instantly restored to fellowship and we are filled with the Spirit. So the filling of the Spirit is optional. It depends on your volition whether or not you utilize 1 John 1.9. So those are the powerful weapons that we have along with the assets of the ten stress busters, the problem-solving devices. We have confession, which gets us into the soul fortress, the filling of the Holy Spirit, who helps us learn, assimilate, and recall doctrine. Faith rest drill, uh, mixing our faith with the promises of God, understanding doctrinal rationales and doctrinal conclusions, grace orientation and doctrinal orientation. That's the foundation. Then we move into the upper level with the personal sense of our eternal destiny, realizing that we are now becoming what we will be for eternity. Personal love for God the Father, unconditional love for all mankind, and occupation with Christ. These are the advanced problem-solving devices as we grow, and they're built upon the ones that go before. This is the love triplex culminating in inner happiness. These are the weapons of our warfare. We are, it's expressed metaphorically in the armor of God in Ephesians chapter 6. It is not the weapons of rationalism. It is not the weapons of empiricism. If you think about David and Goliath, when David went out to do battle with Goliath, when Goliath came and uttered his challenge in the valley of Elim, and he said, anybody, and, and you know, day after day he came out and uttered this challenge, anybody who come out and do battle with me from the, from the uh, Israelites. And this was standard operating procedure. The Philistines were Greek sea peoples. And they did the same thing outside the walls of Troy. You had the battles between Achilles and Hector and Achilles and Paris. And outside, one-on-one, hand-to-hand combat. And whoever the victor was, then that army won. So Goliath is just carrying on the tradition of his people. But nobody from the Jews would come out. Nobody from the Jews would had the courage to face Goliath. And then David was sent by his father to his brothers who were all in the army to take them some, of the, some provisions. And when David brought them lunch, he happened to be there in the plan of God at the same time that Goliath came out to utter his challenge. And when, when David heard Goliath, He looked at the challenge in a completely different way from everybody else. He looked at it theologically. Anybody ever teach you that before? He looked at it theologically. He didn't look at it militarily. How do we know that? Because of David's response. He said, you're going to let this uncircumcised Philistine say these things. Now, why did I emphasize uncircumcised? The reason he's uncircumcised is because the Jews are circumcised. What does circumcision mean? It means that they had a promise from God in the Abrahamic covenant to this piece of real estate. So David is saying, this guy has no legitimate basis in the plan of God to be out there challenging us and for us to be afraid. And then his conclusion, the battle is the Lord. And so he trots on down there to Saul, and he says, I'm going to go battle the Philistine. And Saul says, okay, here, you need a little armor, so put on my armor. You know, you need some psychology, so take your psychology courses. You need some self-esteem, so let's boost your self-esteem. 
you need some covey training, so let's get a little covey training. All these human viewpoint techniques. That's what that armor really represents, is the world is constantly trying to tell us that if we're going to do battle with the giants, we can't do it on... on, on, on. You say, all I really need to know is the Bible, and I can handle anything from, from child abuse to sexual abuse to incest to violence to uh, poverty... I can handle any problem in life, no matter how devastating it might be. That's what the Bible claims. If we believe the Bible, we're going to be like David, and we're going to look at this ten-foot giant and face him with a slingshot. Because the weapons we use are not going to be the weapons that common sense, experience, rationalism tell us are the ones that work. And those things ultimately will be destructive and they won't work. So we have a unique set of weapons and it's your job and responsibility as parents to instill these things in your kids. We looked at Deuteronomy chapter 6. Deuteronomy chapter 6 says that you are to teach your kids while you're sitting down and standing up, while you're walking around, uh, going through all the different things in life. You stop and you say, quiz your kids. What problem-solving device applies now? Have we confessed our sins? What promise applies? Oh, this is getting convicting because, that's right, you need to know those promises so you can (laughs) teach them to your kids. I'm just being facetious. But now you understand why it's so important for you as parents. If you want your kids to understand how to think biblically, then you have to learn to think biblically yourself. You have to know the doctrines. You have to know the promises. And then as you're going through life, you have to stop and face these problems yourself. Oh, what problem-solving device applies here? And model that for your kids so that they can see that. We're destroying speculations. These are ideas. You know, some people think, oh, Pastor Dean, when you start teaching, you seem to get abstract sometimes. You talk about philosophy and you talk about ideas. What is Paul talking about here, folks? He's saying that when we get involved in battles as believers... What are we tearing down? We're tearing down speculations. We're tearing down lofty ideas. And we're taking captive every thought, every thought to the obedience of Christ. So the spiritual life is thinking. Romans 12.2 says that we are to renovate our thinking by the Word of God. And we are to think like Jesus Christ. Christ thinks. That means that we have to understand reality as God defines it as we approach life and make various decisions. Okay, let's turn back to James chapter 4. And we'll just get started in James 4. I didn't quite finish everything I wanted to cover last week. So that wraps up James 3. Now, as we looked at James 3... 13 through 18, it began back in verse 13 with a rhetorical question. Who among you is wise and understanding? There's a problem with this congregation. We've seen some of the problems already. We've seen that there's some division. We've seen the fact that there are people who don't trust the Lord. Back in James 1.8, he says that you must pray pray for wisdom, pray according to faith, that if you do not trust God, you are... Uh, unstable in all your ways, tossed to and fro by every wind of doctrine. What's his point? There were many people in this congregation who were not willing to rest exclusively on divine viewpoint wisdom. They didn't trust God. They weren't utilizing the faith rest drill. One minute they were, the next minute they weren't. They were unstable. They were emotionally unstable. They were what he called two-souled double-minded in all of their ways. And so there were many problems that resulted from that. One of them we saw in the early part of James 2, and that was that they were very prejudicial. And when when wealthy unbelievers came in, and these were wealthy unbelievers who persecuted the Christians and took them to court, when they came to church, they put them in a place of honor, and the poor, beggar, streetless, I mean homeless person from the street who didn't know anything but doctrine and was spiritually mature comes in, he was put back in a corner somewhere. And they had, their values were all out of kilter. And they were completely distorted by human viewpoint. 
One result of this was that they had a lot of people who thought they were teachers and really understood the Bible. And as a result, they were getting into a lot of sins of the tongue. And that was the subject of chapter 3. And then starting in verse 13, James is going to focus our attention on what the real problem is. And the real problem is thinking. That they are still thinking according to the human viewpoint standards of the world. Verses 13 through 18 set up the contrast between the two types of thinking. And now he is going to drive the point home in the first three verses of chapter 4 that the problem is even deeper than just a frame of reference of thought, but it goes all the way down into the fact that they are not dealing with their sin nature. This is the sin nature. We all have a sin nature. And we're going to do a little analysis of the sin nature as we get into this verse. Now, it begins in the Greek with an interrogative adverb, pothen. P-O-T-H-E-N. And pothen asks the question, what is the source? Does something come? What is its source? And just like the former rhetorical question in 3.13 drove their attention to thinking about what is their value system in their thinking? Who is wise and understanding among you? So 4.1 is going to focus their their thinking on why are there so many personal problems in the congregation? How come you're fighting each other? How come there are divisions? Now, we're very fortunate by the grace of God that we don't have anything like this in this congregation. My first church was characterized by these verses. And I have the scars to prove it. What is the source of quarrels and conflicts. Now, this just isn't dealing with the fact that you've got power plays going on in the congregation and you've got people siding with uh, one pastor or another pastor or one Sunday school teacher against another one. This This involves even marriages, conflicts in marriages. Why is it that there are conflicts and problems in the congregation? Marriage breakdown, relationship breakdown, friends... Uh, getting crosswise with each other, contentiousness, argumentativeness. What is the source? Pothen focuses our attention on the source. Think about, don't think about just the externals when you're getting into situations where there are conflicts with other people. You need to think about what's going on. What is the source of that conflict? What's causing the conflict? What is its real origin, not its superficial origin, not the external circumstances that have given rise to the conflict, but what is the real problem? Let's do some biblical analysis of the problem. What is the source? The source of quarrels and conflicts. Now, these are two very very colorful words that James uses here. The first is polemos. P-O-L-E-M-O-S. And this is the primary Greek word for warfare. It's the word that's used to describe the Trojan War. It's the word that's used to describe any kind of military conflict between opposing forces. What is the source of warfare? He's using this word in a figurative sense because what happens when people get crossways and argumentative with each other is it erupts into full-blown warfare between two people. And it happens in congregations, just in case you didn't know that. I've seen congregations split down the middle over the most absurd things, such as the color of carpet in the Sunday school rooms. And they'll choose up sides and fire the pastor over it. (laughs) They just 
focus on all sorts of odd issues because they're not really spiritual. They're not really focused on the important things such as doctrine, and so they'll get caught up in all kinds of, of uh, conflicts. So polemos means to do war or battle. We get an English word from it, polemics, which has to do with debating. So the word relates to being argumentative, contentious, doing battle with one another. What is the real source of the interpersonal battles and arguments or disputes? That's the second word. It looks like this in the Greek. It's mache, M-A-C-H-E. And it refers to battles and by extension to arguments, strife, and disputes. These are very strong words because this is exactly what happens. You let problems between two people escalate. Before long, they're in court with their lawyers screaming at each other. And this is what happens in local congregations. And it is just a tragedy to see how this happens. Now, sometimes it's important for people to divide over certain things, especially doctrine. And we've seen in our study of John time and time again that Jesus was constantly throwing the hot potato of Bible doctrine at the Pharisees and it caused a lot of antagonism and reaction. But it was truth that divides and truth always will divide. Now this is different from what Paul is talking about in Galatians 5, 6, uh, 5.20 where he gives the, the, the list of the deeds of the flesh. There he talks about the deeds of the flesh are immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmities, strife, jealousy, outbursts of anger, disputes, dissensions, and factions. Now that describes what's happening in the congregation that James is addressing. They're choosing up sides and going to battle with one another. But there are other words that are used in the Scripture. For example, in 1 Corinthians 11, 18, and 19, the Apostle Paul says, For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that divisions exist among you. Now there he's using it in a negative way. He's talking to the Corinthians. This is the passage dealing with the Lord's table. That there are divisions among you. One person wants this and another person wants that. And of course we're dealing with the extremely perverse and carnal Corinthian congregation. But then in 11.19, Paul makes a very interesting statement. He says, For there must also be factions among you. In other words, he says, there is, a port, there is a time and a place for divisions. Why? In order that those who are approved... You know what the Greek word is? Dokimion. D-O-K-I-M-I-O-N. The, the verb form, dokimazo, is used to talk about the approval of the believer at the judgment seat of Christ. The noun is used in James 1, 3 to talk about that when you go through testing, you have endurance that you may be tested. And there it's the verb, dokimazo, to show approval in your testing. It's a testing for evaluation. So here, Paul recognizes that there are going to be times in the local church when somebody will come along and say something that's false, say something that's legalistic, say something that is in error, and it's going to cause honest disruption in order to reveal what the truth is. If you go through the history of Christianity, you'll realize that most theology came to be understood because a heretic taught something that was false. Throughout the entire scope of church history, for example, in the early church, they had no set canon. They hadn't decided what the New Testament canon consisted of. They knew that these books were from God. And in the early first or second century, around 125 to 140, they really hadn't collected all of them together. And the first person to come along and say there is a specific canon of Scripture, it's these ten epistles by Paul and the Gospel of Luke, and that's it, was a man named Marcion. 
Marcion was an anti-Semitic heresy. Anti-Semitism is one of the worst sins that people can commit. And he was an anti, he hated anything Jewish, and so he was going to cut anything that smacked of Judaism or Jewishness, had a Jewish flavor to it, out of the New Testament. And so Marcion came along and said, it's these 11 books, and everybody else went, now wait a minute. Is that right? No, that's not right. And so once again, you see the church formulates truth because of what a heretic said. Now we live in an age that we have our divisions and things come up doctrinally. And something has been brought to my attention recently that is very sad because of my own personal involvement and personal knowledge of some of the people who are involved in this. Before we get to it, we have to understand a few things about the sin nature. The sin nature is motivated by a core of lust patterns, which James is going to talk about in verse 2. Your lust patterns are going to trend in one of two directions. This direction trends it towards asceticism and legalism. This is the person or people who define Christianity in terms of do's and don'ts. You can't do this. You can't do that. Don't dress like this. Don't wear that. Don't go to that movie. If you do, then you're not really a Christian. They confuse morality with spirituality. This is asceticism. I'm going to give up certain things and that's going to impress God with how holy I am. Now, the other extreme, which is just as bad, is antinomianism. What is antinomianism? That's a big word. It's taken from two Greek words, anti meaning against, and namos meaning law. And this is the idea that Christ has already paid for all my sins, and I have grace, and they're already taken care of, so I can just do whatever I want to. I can just go out, and and really all these imperatives in Scripture don't really mean that. Because if God meant it, that would be legalism. Now that may surprise you, and I have to exercise my function as a pastor, as a shepherd, in warning you all from the wolves that are appearing in the flock. For those of you who don't know, the background of this church is what has been called a doctrinal church. Because we realize that doctrine is what's important, the teaching of Scripture. Doctrine is not just abstract theology. In the late 19th century, a reaction set in to the rise of liberalism. You had the development of what were called prophecy conference, conferences. Some of the major speakers were people like Dwight Moody, Art Rubin A. Torrey, Lewisbury Chafer, C.I. Schofield, people like that. You had the Niagara conferences over in Niagara, the Northfield conferences up in Massachusetts. You had other conferences down in New York. A lot of things took place in this area. What happened was the people who believed the Bible separated from the mainline denominations. And they started what became known as independent Bible churches. They started Bible institutes like Moody Bible Institute and Biola and any number of other. There were hundreds of Bible institutes that started in this time. And seminaries like Dallas Theological Seminary. Talbot Theological Seminary, Capital Bible Seminary, all have their roots. Philadelphia College of the Bible, all have their roots in this period at the end of the 19th century, 20th century. Uh, DTS was led by a man named Lewis Berry Chafer. And then one of Chafer's students, a man by the name of uh, R.B. Theme Jr., came out of Dallas Seminary and went down to pastor a church in Houston called Baraka Church. And he began to really emphasize the importance of teaching, which impacted hundreds of thousands of people. And they started having pastor's conferences down there, and it was the teaching of uh, pastor theme that impacted the pastor of this church at that time back in the 60s. And this church began to change to where it taught more than just railed against sin. And then, of course, Ron came along. Ron was sort of a second generation. His pastor had been directly influenced by uh, Pastor Theme, and a lot of men have been directly or indirectly influenced by the ministry there. And so the pastor, the doc, I mean, the pastors' conferences that Baraka started having in the late 70s, uh, or in the early 70s, really, began to have an impact on a number of other pastors and churches. And so they became known as doctrinal churches. Now there are a number of, min- of missionaries that we support. And one of the missionaries that we support 
just sent me some, a letter. And he was asking the question about this new antinomianism that has developed in the states. And my response was, what antinomianism? When he explained it, I've been aware of this and involved in some dialogues with this quite a bit already. This is what he writes. As regards the question concerning antinomianism, this has to do with teaching that is coming out of some uh, Bible churches that we know of. And he mentions a town in North uh, Texas and one in Oklahoma. He says, which says that there are no commands for the Christian life. All is grace and all is by faith. You don't even have to confess your sins. Just faith it, brother. I know of one man who called Pastor Theme a legalist. Now, you don't know Pastor Theme, but I do. He's not a legalist. The premise is that if the Christian life is a grace way of life, there can be no commands. Otherwise, it isn't grace. If the Christian attempts to keep any command from the New Testament, he is no different from the Jews who tried to keep the law. This teaching extends to every command, including those related to the filling of the Holy Spirit and sanctification. In other words, there is no command to keep with regard to adultery. Of course, if you are walking by faith, God won't lead you into adultery, but there's no prohibition against it for the Christian living under grace. Now, I'm not going to mention these men, but many of you know who some of these men are. Someone uh, from Tulsa gave his wife a couple of tapes that had two men speaking, whom you know, speaking of me. He said, I was dismayed and outraged by what I heard, but obviously the people in the churches have no discernment about what they are hearing. For example, the most important book in the Old Testament is Job. And if you don't understand that, you can't understand the rest of the Old Testament. That is unmitigated hogwash. I have better words to describe it, but I won't. That's heresy. And people should be smart enough, but then Scripture does call us sheep, so we're not always smart enough to know that they are being fleeced by their shepherds. Furthermore, he says, then there is the turn to mysticism and the old analogical and allegorical approach to hermeneutics. For example, Samson's consorting with Delilah is a type of Christ bearing our sins on the cross. The honey in the carcass of the lion killed by Samson represents the church. And people are ooing and aahing about such deep teaching. Makes me want to puke. Well, we need to support this missionary. <laughs> Is it not from here the struggles of war? Oh, and, and never mind. That's something else I added. Let me see. What else does he say? He listened to a tape. He said, I heard him teach that while all Scripture is inspired, not all Scripture is the Word of God. Only the Gospel is the Word of God, plus anything else that he decides to lump into that category. He did say that all of Proverbs is human viewpoint and cannot be trusted to be true, cannot be used for any spiritual application, except for the last two chapters. And he got this from Proverbs 3.5, which says that the Word of God is pure. He says that everything that came before is the Word of Solomon. He then proceeds to show how other wisdom literature sounds so much like Proverbs that it must also be human viewpoint. That Song of Solomon, uh, Job, passages like that, some of the Psalms. The fact, of course, that Jesus quoted from the Proverbs apparently doesn't prove anything. He also has some weird stuff about illumination from the Spirit. He says there is no learning process. He says, quote, this is a quote off of a tape, there's not a learning in the same way as you learn anything else. It is a knowing brought about by God in our souls. So when we got the gospel, it was not something we figured out and then said, God, I'm going to hold you to it. You've got to save me now because I believe in Christ. No, He imparted the gospel to each and every one of us. You didn't learn the gospel through the scriptures to be saved. It was imparted by revelation. This is pure mysticism. Anyway, he just goes on to describe that, and it makes me rather nauseous to even talk about it. But we need to be aware of it, not just because it might touch some of you at one point or another, but because there are a number of people now across the country who are getting tapes from this ministry, and some of them have been more directly impacted by this, and so they need to hear and be warned 
of what is going on. And because of the fact that a number of these congregations have been uh, working together, had people in their congregations going out on the mission field to Russia and Africa and Southeast Asia, these people from the different congregations are trading tapes. And so these tapes are slowly moving their way through some of the doctrinal churches. And this is nothing but, but heresy. And, and the sad thing is that some of the men who are teaching this I have known since I was very young and I have counted them as very close friends. So it is a deeply personal issue with me. And we've already had one pastor's conference dealing with this in 95, I believe. And we're going to have to deal with it again in our national teaching pastor's conference this coming uh, spring, next May. So, when you think about the quarrels, the conflicts that erupt in churches, some come from right reasons. Doctrine divides. Truth divides. And sometimes you have to take a stand. But more often than not, it comes from wrong reasons because it's motivated by the lust pattern of the flesh. And that's what James will go on to say in the coming verses. So, we'll stop there halfway through verse 1 and we'll pick it up there next Wednesday night with our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Father, we thank you for your word and you pray that we and we pray that we would always be teachable and truly humble, willing to come and to your word and let it transform the thinking in our soul because we know that the only way that we can have any level of success in life and for eternity is to align our thinking with what you have described in your word. Father, we pray for our missionaries who are out on the field who are having to deal with these false ideas that are making their way there, just pray that you would give them the wisdom to deal with them fairly, honestly, and decisively. Father, we pray for each one in this congregation that you would challenge us with the things that we have learned, that we may push forward in our spiritual growth. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.